Alright, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27, verse 4. I'll be reading Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Let's pray. Father, this morning, like every morning, we beg for Your name to be lifted up. But more than that, that it be lifted up to our sight so that by Your Spirit we adore and love what we see this morning. Your eternal beauty and glory and goodness to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ, as the source of all true happiness forever. To the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after three and a half years in the Gospel of Luke, before we pick up another Bible book and start working through it, for the next seven weeks, I'm doing a series that is titled, The Core Values of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. These five core values are the five core values that when the idea of planting a new church with six people, these were the things I laid out and said, I'm willing to do that if you're with me on these. And so, most of you were not here for that. And so I want you to listen over these weeks very carefully and see if you see a connection and a progression through these five core values. Briefly, they are core value number one, God. Core value number two, our response to the reality of who God is. Saving faith. Core value number three is Therefore, God has ordained that those two things be happening, seeing Him and responding to Him through this book called Holy Scripture, 66 books of the Bible, central to the life of the local church. Core value number four, don't, we don't take it lightly. We sing. Why do we sing? And core value number five flows out of those verticals is the horizontal. The life of the church first and foremost and therefore why small groups? Whether it's a really large church or a small church like this. Why going to church on Sunday and listening to a sermon and a monologue and leaving is not the Christian life. It's part of it. And then to our families, neighbors, outward in the culture, in evangelism, and through world missions, we go horizontal. And so, core value number one, we don't assume God. We 
intend to be deliberately God-centered as opposed to man-centered. And so we start this week with that core value number one. This number one core value will be two weeks. We won't be able to do the whole shebang this morning. The foundation of Christianity, of existence, of the local church, is God. And to the extent we assume God is to the extent we will lose the real biblical God and we will to that extent become an inauthentic church-going people. So when I say that core value number one is God, I don't mean God in the way that we envision Him to be. I mean God in the way that He has revealed Himself through the prophets and the apostles in Holy Scripture. It's holy. Perfectly righteous. Infinitely beautiful. And awesome. And wrathful. And merciful. And just. And good. Pastor Steve Lawson, in his book Made in His Image writes this, quote, I believe that if there is one area of our theology as Christians that is most lacking in the church today, it is our understanding of who God really is. Our most rudimentary problem is that we do not fully comprehend who He is. Our thoughts about Him have become very unclear and fuzzy and oblique. The result of this distorted view of deity is that it leaves everything else out of focus as well. Whenever we lose a right view of God, everything else gets out of perspective. A user-friendly God has become the trend of the day. A God made in our image. The result is a God who makes us feel comfortable. One we can control and manage, even use. This downsized version of God is a diminutive deity dependent upon us. We are not dependent upon Him. Many churches have become nothing more than entertainment centers, giving slick performances to growing numbers of mesmerized but unproductive churchgoers. Such devices may bring people into the church, but they do not transform them once they arrive. End quote. The point of this core value number one is this. When God is assumed, the church becomes wide open to all kinds of other gods philosophies of ministry. Uh, For example, some see the church as consumer-driven. We got it. Jesus is great. Saves you. Believe in Him. That's the core. Now, let's follow Coca-Cola and sell our product. So you look to the culture. You get surveys. You find out what people would like about church and then 
You form your local communities that way in order to get them to buy your product. It works for Coke. Why won't it work for Jesus? Or the culture-driven model. You, you put your finger on what's going on in popular culture. And you realize what the music's like and the entertainment's like. And then you bring it into the church and you just put Jesus' twist on it and people will want to come. Or the felt needs model. There are a lot of felt needs in our world of brokenness. You find out what those are and you develop all of your programs in the church and you develop your sermon series over the felt needs of people having trouble raising children? Who doesn't? Marriage? Who's never had trouble in marriage? We go, and, and therefore, that'll draw the people and that's what you give them. The point is, all of those types of philosophy of ministry are radically Man, human centered. One popular, actually the most popular TV preacher for a few decades, who wrote many books, he just did it blatantly and he wrote it blatantly, saying, quote, It is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred. That is, in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. His point is, we've got to get away from making church, Christianity, about God. As he goes on to write, quote, This master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human beings. Self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth self-esteem. The pearl of great price is genuine self-respect and self-esteem. And that Gospel has affected large segments of American evangelicalism. Most do not ever state it that blatantly. But what happens so easily because of the culture of our American evangelicalism is that God is assumed and He's pushed to the periphery. And to the extent that that happens, we bring in pop psychology. Well, you use a text of Scripture, of course. But what you're really preaching is what people like to watch on afternoon TV. Or self-esteem and that doctrine that floated for decades and this country was filling pulpits in the name of Christ. Now, granted with these different models, there's always something to learn and glean for what they're saying. Yes, it's really important to know people and to be sensitive to others' needs. That's actually the life of the Christian in loving one another. It's important to address issues in culture and of the day biblically. It is important to speak the language of your culture and people. Don't be using words that you're not going to explain. Speak to them. All of that stuff we glean from those type of models. 
But the problem with making these the philosophy of how you do the local church is that when it comes to the essence of reality, of God, of the Gospel of Christ, they not only begin as shallow, but they find out that they have to maintain that church towards God in a very shallow way. Those who do buy into that, look, it's just an opinion, but it's got to be because they have a very diminished view of who God is. And this has radically filtered down to the pew in our evangelical culture. I'm going to read a little extensively from a worship leader, Steve Fry, who, who wrote, quote, Once we had settled, I had the opportunity to huddle with some executives from one of the well-known Christian music labels. They knew my work and they were interested in doing a recording with me. When they asked about what kind of project I would like to do, I told them I wanted to write a worship musical that focused on the character of God. A collection of worship songs that would celebrate the many facets of His wonder. The executive's response was surprisingly cool. They told me that they would like to help, but that frankly, most believers would not buy an album about God. According to their demographic studies, such a project would not appeal to most Christians. I thought it strange that a recording that would celebrate the very one who is our author of life would hold so little appeal to the average believer. Now, the reason I quote that is because those who want to make money, and it's okay to make money and have corporations and music labels and publishing companies... They can really tell you what's going on out there. He goes on to write, I was in the process of writing my first book. I met with an editor of a publishing company who had been assigned to finesse my manuscript. He had his finger on the pulse of the Christian marketplace and he asked me what I wanted to write about. And I told him the same thing I had told the record company brass. I want to write about God. I want to take snapshots of the many wonders of His character and just focus on Him. I would like to help you write that kind of book, he replied. In fact, the Christian marketplace desperately needs that kind of book. But honestly, the average Christian is not going to buy a book about God. End quote. That's the context in which I speak into. Now, my personal reason for starting with God is because I am a Christian and I'm a Christian because I am desperate for reality, for purpose, for forgiveness, for fellowship with God, for true happiness to 
fill this empty, sinful vacuum within me. And connected to that, I am convinced from Bible and 33 years of being a Christian that every sheep who does hear Jesus' voice and comes to Him is also deep down hungry for the unadulterated clarity of biblical truth about God, about Christ, about the Gospel, about propitiation. I can go on and on with biblical words. They want it if they're His. Many just may have never heard it. We are all desperate for meaning in this world. Christian or unchristian. We're all looking to fill that hole. And the problem with every one of us as sinful creatures is that we're looking in all the wrong places. And the Holy Scripture is clear that only God in Christ, the, the raw, biblical, clear truth of God in Christ is what satisfies our deepest longings for happiness. Not His gifts which are abundant, but God Himself. And that's what we mean here by the term, because it sounds trite after a while, God-centeredness. Those two realities, the yearning in the human heart, and only God can fill it, are the foundation of the life of every local church, or ought to be. God, as He has revealed Himself in Scripture, and our heartfelt response to who He said He is and how He saves in Scripture. As local churches, we want to reach people with Jesus. But not Jesus somehow cleaned up. The Jesus of the Bible. The Gospel of salvation from the wrath of God for your sin. And that it took God to become a human being in order to suffer the justice of God against all who will believe in Him. In other words, just to say to people in evangelism and in missions, taste and see that He is good. But there is a danger constantly of taking God and His truth in the life of Christianity for granted. Which is essentially to ignore Him. But go on doing church. Doing our ministries. At the core of our corporate being as a local church, we want to be Psalm 27 4 type people. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that, and that is this. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, all the days of my life to see, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to meditate in His temple upon His presence. 
Or the way that Isaiah the prophet put it in Isaiah 26, verse 8. Indeed, while following the way of Your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for You eagerly. Your name. Even Your renown is the desire of our hearts. That's the essence of what it is to be a Christian. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said this, Lawlessness will be multiplied and the love of many will grow cold. A core aspect of the Christian life is to hear Jesus' words there and to be scared to death that my heart is growing cold toward Him? That is the Christian experience. That is the fear of the Lord. That is the walk of faith and repentance. That is why we're desperate to pick up our Bibles and sit alone with the Lord. Sing daily. Not because it's a Christian thing to do. Because we hear Jesus and say, God forbid that be me to turn away from such beauty as You, my Creator and my Savior. See, Jesus goes on in the very next line to say, after many's heart, many hearts will go cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. And then, in this Gospel... This good news of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to the nations. Then the end will come. Well, who's going to do that? Those who don't grow cold. How? That's what core value number one is about. By constantly seeing Him. Beholding the beauty of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Bible paints the biblical portrait of God for us. That's where He in truth is found. And the portrait that it paints is the means of our joy. It's the object of a Christian's heart finding true happiness Enjoy. The local church is to be about apprehending God, apprehending the gospel of Jesus in truth. We are meant to burn red hot for Him constantly. And the only way as a community to pursue that goal is to continually be God centered. 
to continually never assume, but consciously uphold the truth and the beauty and the contours of who God is. Our task is to live to the glory of God. Isn't that how Paul said it? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. And the essence of glorifying God is to deeply love Him, desire Him, find your source of true, infinite happiness in Him. Or, this is the way that Psalm 42.1 says the same thing. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. As a deer that is really thirsty looking to drink, the soul of us sinners through Christ is to be thirsty to come to drink. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's the essence of Christianity. Of the heart of a Christian. Peter says the same thing. He just says it in different words. And he does it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. Though, Christian, you have never seen Jesus in the flesh like I, Peter, have, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That dynamic is the essence of being a Christian. But it's not the foundation. There's a difference. The seven or eight times I've been to the Grand Canyon, or the last time when I took my three oldest children, we hiked for 13 hours down to the, well, the whole thing, but down to the plateau and you're engulfed in the canyon and you're looking straight down a thousand feet at the Colorado River. There are feelings. There's wonder, awestruck wonder at God's creation of this canyon that go through the human heart. Okay, but if I were to say, my feelings of, wow, this is awesome, is the essence of the canyon, I would be wrong. They're not the same. That's my response to something outside of me. The beauty and the wonder of the canyon. If one begins to take the Grand Canyon for granted, that wonder, that deep, otherworldly feeling that looked away from itself and felt its smallness in a sense and it felt good 
that would diminish and the Grand Canyon would cease to be glorified in that person. You know, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know this experience. We all do to one extent or another. Maybe, especially if you came to Christ, you know, as a late teen or an adult, you couldn't wait to be in church. You couldn't wait for the music to play. You couldn't wait to read your Bible. At every turn, you were amazed at what you were singing and in the melody. And look at these words I'm singing as He has saved me. Oh, Jesus. And you may have experienced that for two months or four years. But then all of a sudden, you kind of look back and you realize, where's that wonder? Where's that sense of heartfelt joy? And you realize, oh, I'm going cold. But see, if you started to think, oh, I know what it is. It's the darn band. We have enough instruments for the right kind. We're singing the wrong kind of song or the wrong style. If we just change that, I get that feeling again. And we totally missed the point. What we all have to do at those times is to stop ignoring the Grand Canyon. Of God. The essence of the local church, core value number one, is to continually placard clearly God and His attributes, His eternality. The second person of the Trinity who became man for us and for our salvation and was resurrected from the dead. God the way He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture in all His fullness, His holiness, and thus His wrath and His mercy. From before the foundation of the world, He had always purposed to save for Himself a people. Every contour of His being must be the constant center of the local Christian community. All right, that's introduction. And so we'll just hit portion of it now for the rest of this time and come back next week at this God. Here's, here's the rub then. Our desire for being awed by the Grand Canyon of God, for finding our enjoyment and delight in God on an ongoing basis must constantly be squarely based on God's passion for enjoying and exalting Himself in all things. If our passion for God is going to last, it must be rooted in God's passion for God. If not, then the local church becomes very susceptible to every new fad that comes down the pike of Christendom. Self-esteem, pop psychology, build groups around getting delivered from your besetting sin, and that's the core of your Christianity. New music, 
Oh, maybe getting kind of bored. Maybe we bring candles, incense in here, like some of us who came from Roman Catholic backgrounds, make it feel more holy. People do do this. And then they get tired of that. And you know what they do? And many have done it over the last three decades. They finally dart low church, popular evangelicalism, go back to Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, thinking that's the answer. It's not. The answer is God in Christ, clearly. And so, here is the foundational core value, number one, said again. We must keep God as supreme in our lives. And therefore, we have to constantly see and believe and love the truth that God is supreme in the life of God Himself. Or let me just say that a little bit differently and you see it this way all over the Bible. The foundation of Christianity is the glory of God. Now, for a minute I'm going to get a little autobiographical by quoting a paragraph from my autobiography. It makes it easy. Quote, The year 1993 really means something to me. Not just because it was one of the greatest moments of my life as my wife and I exchanged our wedding vows, but because it was the time that God, through the pages of Scripture, got really huge in my mind. His self-revelation was sitting there on the pages of the Bible for thousands of years. But with the help of Professor Daniel Fuller, My man-centered way of reading was turned upside down. God had truly saved me twelve years earlier. I was born again by the Holy Spirit. I knew most of Paul's epistles by memory. I knew every significant Bible character. I knew that the one true God exists in three eternal persons. I understood that He knew everything and could do anything He so chose to do. But during 1993, the overwhelming subject that stunned me was the subject of God. Of God Himself. End quote. So at the core, in my experience of that, it was this. I began to see all over the Bible, text after text after text that kept saying in one way or another that God acts for His own glory. For 12 years as a Christian, those texts, when I would read them, baffled me. They were nonsensical to me. They were just Christian ease. I had been spoon-fed standard American evangelical watered-down Christianity, which therefore gave me no apparatus, gave me no grid in which to understand such text at face value. Here's, here's the main text that... I'm telling you, for years, it really did bug me. 
because it made no sense to me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I would read. John saying, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Now stop. Those words there are the most glorious words to this punk 19-year-old kid who came to Christ. Really? Yes. Oh, and I love those words. But it didn't end there. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. And I literally used to think, what in the world are you talking about? It's for my sake that my sins are forgiven. I need that. And that is true. But the idea that He forgives my sins for His glory, another way to say His glory, is for His name's sake to be glorified, made no sense to me. And then 12 years into my Christianity, I began to see it. And I began to see it everywhere. Like in the cross. Here's Jesus the night before His crucifixion praying. And He means referring to what He's going to be going through. The cross. Father, now's the time. In this cross, glorify Your name. Or Paul, at the end of that glorious paragraph in Philippians chapter 2, ends it this way in 2.11, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then he tacks on to the glory of God the Father. You see, the most wonderful truth of the Gospel is that God is first and foremost for Himself. Comma. And therefore, because He always upholds His glory, He is fully, fully there for His people's happiness. And so my goal is to help us not let text like God does everything for His glory. He forgives your sins. Oh, for His name's sake. To not let those kinds of texts just be Christianese, trite, religious jargon but to see them for what they really are, the very foundation for our eternal happiness. I no longer read over texts like Ephesians 1, verses 5-6. to Either turn there and look at it or just listen. I used to read it over it. It didn't make any sense to me. Now it's like a deep cavern in the Grand Canyon. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And then He adds, 
unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, if you don't read well yet, what He just said is this glorious salvation that those of us who have fled for refuge in Jesus, He said, the ultimate goal of all of that was that we would say, you're amazing, God. And God was after the praise of His glory. And then you jump down to verse 12 of Ephesians 1, and He says it again. We who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. He says it again in verse 14. Unto the praise of His glory. Paul's clear. He chose us in Christ in order that the glory of His grace would be magnified in His people. Our entire salvation is unto the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. Every biblical doctrine which ought to be precious to us is there for the purpose of glorifying God. Now, I could read for the next couple hours biblical text on the glory of God, and I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to read about five or six. Listen to the way God speaks in Holy Scripture. In Isaiah 43, 7, the Lord says, Bring everyone who is called by My name and whom I have created for My glory. Isaiah 48, 9-11, For the sake of My name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. For Psalm 106, 7-8, Our fathers rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, here's our hope. Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name that He might make His power known. Well, Paul in Romans 15.8 writes, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God in order to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles in order to glorify God for His mercy. And just one more. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes, Jesus will come back one day And when He does, He's coming, quote, in order, here's purpose, in order to be glorified in His saints on that day. And 
to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, here's the temptation of taking biblical text at face value, which we ought always to do in its context. But here's the temptation of what you just heard, to think maybe something like this. God's evidently some kind of an insecure, egocentric, selfish, unloving person then. Or to do what most of us do. Let's just forget about trying to understand such text. And let's just go about doing church and being Christian and saying glory to God and don't ask me what I mean. And both of those would be tragically wrong. The first response about God being unloving and unselfish is absolutely backward. God's upholding God is the foundation for His infinite love towards sinners whom He's saving. If God did not take Himself seriously, if He did not take His internal, infinite, and eternal holiness seriously in the face of a sinner like Joe LeMay, ah, it ain't that. I just sweep it under the rug, His profaning my name. Then He would be sinful. He would be failing to love that which is most lovable. And by so doing, if we can just talk theoretically, He would diminish His glory and thus He would diminish the object of my happiness in Jesus Christ. His glory is the foundation for us receiving unimaginable loving kindness from God forever through Jesus Christ. The, the, the other response, let's just ignore, not worry so much about understanding text like that, leaves you wide open for religious legalism. My contention is that the foundation of the gospel is that God does everything for his own sake ultimately. But that truth is not contradictory to, but it is the very basis of the truth that He created us to enjoy Him and be happy in Him forever through Jesus Christ. God in Christ seeks to satisfy us with His grace his presence in mercy. Or another way to say it is, with His glory. And so Jesus comes and He says, Come unto Me, all you who are confused, broken, sinful, heavy laden, burdened, I will give to you rest for your soul. Now next week, we are going to come to the contemplation of God. To the eternal God. 
to the internal workings of the one eternal God, His holy Trinity. But for the next ten minutes as I close, this morning, what flows out of that is the necessity for all of us Christians to make a distinction between God's love for Himself, which is different than His love for us. God loves Himself because He's not an idolater. He worships God. He finds His need met eternally in the communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In relation to us, He's absolutely needless, which is really good news. None of us like to be abused for someone else's happiness or used. Right. So God has eternally been getting His, if I can just use Dan Fuller, my professor's terminology, His need love met in the Holy Trinity. But He loves us. We use the same word in English, right? Love, L-O-V-E. They do the same with these kind of words in New Testament with agape or phileo. But same word, L-O-V, but means something very different. He loves us, not that way. <laughs> that, that would consume us. He loves us with, to coin Dan Fuller's phrase, benevolent love. An overflow of the fullness that He is toward us to meet our needs. See, there is a difference between loving something in order to get your needs met and loving someone in order to meet their needs. They're totally different. Okay, for, for instance, I love oxygen. And, and if you ever find yourself where there's l very little oxygen, you start to be in touch with how much you love oxygen. And so when I say, I love oxygen, you don't think, well, look at that. He's really a kind man. He's serving oxygen. He's helping oxygen out. Oxygen has a need, and you're loving and meeting that need. Don't mean that at all. We are to love God in that way, like you love oxygen. God loves Himself like He loves oxygen. That is the essence of the Holy Trinity. But love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love them that way. You'll kill them. You love them with benevolent love. You get your fullness. Well, look at that need. That is a hungry person. I make them a peanut butter sandwich and I give it out of my fullness to feed them and meet their need. That's benevolent love. We are to love God like oxygen. God loves us like making a peanut butter sandwich with benevolent love. If we ever try to love God with benevolent love, there's a term for it. It's called sin. It's called legalism. It's called boasting. It's called arrogance. That you think God is needy in any way? To the extent we understand this, 
I won't just read your Bible because, well, I guess I'm supposed to read my Bible and somehow God's happy because I read my Bible. That attitude right there is sinful. We realize, that's how I feel right now. Okay, here's repentance. Now. Oh, God, why, why don't I feel my desperate need to stay alive physically with oxygen or my desperate need spiritually for your presence right now through the Scripture? The essence of loving God is to go to Him constantly to get He is not a man that he needs to be served by human hands as if he needed anything. From that getting, we then overflow in loving others benevolently. You see, the gospel, it goes out to the world, to us hurting, sinful, broken people with this God-shaped vacuum. And God says, I, through My Son, Jesus Christ, live to meet your needs. Come unto Me and find rest. I am your rest. Your true joy. Come. Eat freely. Drink of My eternal fountain. This is how Paul wrote this. In Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. When He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just always pay attention to purpose clauses in the Bible. Or becauses or fors or you know, ground arguments. Oh, they're huge. Why all this? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We'll come to the core of this glorious God even more next week. But as I close, the tragedy is that many of us have been taught that the way to glorify God is to just do the Christian thing. Oh, and don't do that. No, don't, no, no fornication, which is true. Don't miss me. No adultery, true. Okay. Don't be a drug addict. Don't be a drunkard. Don't cheat people in your business. All these things are true. Read your Bible. Yeah. Pray. All these things are... Got it. But the idea... Well, that's what a Christian does, so I just... Do it. If that, that's as far as it goes, oh, you've totally missed the boat. At the core of all of those things, at the core of the Gospel of Jesus is to delight yourself in the Lord. That's why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph is saying none of God's gifts as beautiful as our children are, or spouses are. None of God's gifts satisfy that deepest need in our soul as creatures. But God Himself. The foundation of the Christian life is God Himself. The essence of what it means to love God is to seek Him and to be satisfied in who He is as He has revealed Himself savingly in Jesus Christ. All of that will absolutely include obeying commands and trusting His Word and thanking Him for His gifts. But the very essence of loving God is enjoying all that He is. And that enjoyment is what glorifies His worth most fully. So, as I close, okay, here it is. None of us has arrived at perfect enjoyment of God. Perfect satisfaction to God. And you just get it off the shelf of your bucket list. You never will until the resurrection down here. But, true conversion to Christ. Conversion by new birth, by the Holy Spirit, has caused us to, in portion, one degree or another, taste that truth. To taste and see that He is good. And therefore, at Sovereign Grace, we will seek together to try our best to never assume God, but to keep Him as the core value number one here. And as a church, we will seek to be God-centered for our joy in God and for God's glory. And to be a community that seeks to lure people into this joy in Christ so that they will say with us, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life in order to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, meditate in His temple presence. Let's pray. Father, the glorious, undergirding good news of all that we heard this morning is that You have sent Your Son in order to purchase for His glory and Your glory and for Himself a people. A people who will come to Him. Will believe this good news. 
that Christ took my sin and bore its punishment and washed me clean for eternity. And those of us who have at this point come see that you took our dead, God-hating hearts and made us alive. And thus, in everything we heard this morning, we work and persevere while resting in the truth that what you have begun, you will complete throughout our lives to the glory of your name and your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.